the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn, he's producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Glad to have you with us today. We're going to certainly wind our way through the day's news, including the National Day of um, the National Prayer Breakfast, I should say. But we're also going to share a classic interview with Albert Moeller. He's the author of The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. Looking forward to hearing that classic interview. And later in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with the Bidi, Ini Abwale. She's the author of The Gospel for Muslims, an encouragement to share Christ with confidence. That will give us a broader context. Certainly our attention is focused on what's happening in Olympia and in Salem and in Washington, um, but we have a commission that exceeds all of that. We're going to talk about one particular people group, the Gospel for Muslims, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, President Biden addressed the National Prayer Breakfast today, saying we must defeat political extremism. And I should mention former Presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama also addressed the annual breakfast. Conspicuously absent, former President Donald Trump. Well, President Biden addressed the National Prayer Breakfast, saying the country needs to defeat political extremism and rely on faith to guide us out of the darkness and into the light amid the coronavirus pandemic. He delivered remarks through video at the National Prayer Breakfast this morning for the first time as President of the United States, referencing the coronavirus pandemic, the existential threat of the climate crisis, racial injustice, and the Capitol riot last month. We've witnessed images we've never imagined, the president said, a violent assault the U.S. Capitol, democracy, and a violent threat that took lives. We must defeat political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism. For so many in our nation, this is a dark, dark time. He added, so where do we turn? Faith. Now, it's always interesting to me when political leaders, and I'm not singling out Joe Biden, I'm saying political leaders in general, they suggest that we turn to faith as if faith itself had some animating principle that would change things. It's the object of our faith and our willingness to conform to what the God of the universe who inspires our faith tells us to do. So it's interesting to me to, for politicians to to faith because it's kind of a generic concept. Okay, faith, I feel good about something. I just, you know, I want to go in a particular direction. But I, I often question, and again, I'm not singling out President Biden. I question uh, their understanding of what it means to turn to God in faith, looking to him for wisdom and direction to resolve our problems. Um, so that said, uh, the president went on to say faith shows the way forward as one nation in a common purpose. Well, no, faith doesn't do that. God does that when we put our faith in him. We open our ears and our hearts to follow him. Well, these aren't Democrats and Republicans going hungry. There are fellow Americans, fellow human beings. These aren't Democrats going without health care. They are our fellow Americans, fellow human beings. 
Uh, there aren't Democrats and, Demo- and Republicans being evicted from uh, their homes. There are fellow Americans. Well, actually, they're all of those things, fellow human beings. These aren't Democrats or Republicans losing their lives to this deadly virus. They are our fellow Americans, fellow human beings. He added, this is not a nation that can uh, or will simply stand by and watch this. It's not who we are. Now, that's another phrase that... Um, in the hands of politicians is always very interesting to me. This is not who we are. And they're usually referring to an event that's already taken place that reflects precisely who the individuals involved are. We like to think of ourselves as being above the actions that we may take that are unflattering, uh, that are um, morally and um, in other ways wrong. But we are precisely the collection of sinful behaviors that reflect who we actually are. Now, we like to think better of ourselves, but that's not generally the case. We are precisely sinners who need repentance, but not repentance alone. We need to be conformed by the work of the Holy Spirit to change us in dramatic ways. We, for the most part, don't really want to admit we need to change. Anyway, he went on to say, we need one another. We need to learn and lean on one another, lift one another up. Absolutely true. Let faith guide us out of the darkness and into the light. Again, faith in what, in whom, um, and in what guides us out of the darkness and into the light. It's not faith. It's the object of our faith. Now, if the object of my faith is just a sense that, you know, if we pull up our bootstraps, we can we can make this happen. Or if the object of my faith is I can do anything because I'm an American. Or if the object of my faith is the God of the universe who says, this is what your character is really like as an individual, as a nation, as a collection of people. And these are the things that you need to do in order to resolve the, uh, the core sinful nature that every one of us possesses and fallen short of his glory. Then there's really hope for us. But if we talk in this sort of generic, and again, this and every other president has done it, this generic uh, notion of faith, this nebulous notion of faith, then we're, we're going to fall short. And that's been, I think, a, a characteristic of our nation's history as well as our own personal histories. Anyway, the president's remarks came after former President Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama also addressed the annual breakfast, as well as a number of lawmakers. The president's comments about political extremism echoed his inaugural address last month. I mean, these are politicians. This is how they speak. Upon taking office, he requested a comprehensive threat assessment on domestic violent extremism from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in coordination with the FBI and the Department Department of Homeland Security Press Secretary Jen Psaki said all good things, but I think there also needs to be an authority, an appeal rather, to a much higher authority who has power that exceeds all of these temporary office holders. Well, last month, um, the White House Press Secretary said all violence will be reviewed as part of the Biden administration's effort to combat domestic violent extremism. And I hope that is the case, not just what happened in Washington, where politicians uh, were threatened and The interesting thing to me is these politicians are threatened to the degree that their lives were in danger and they they, it's hard for them to comprehend the fact that their lives were in danger. And yet many of them incited uh, violence that took place away from the Capitol in our own cities where people's livelihoods were destroyed, people's lives were destroyed and so on. Um, But this has been elevated because these are these are the elite among us. In any event, um, let's hope that this is, in fact, a broad comprehensive threat assessment on domestic violent extremism as promised. Well, the announcement came just weeks after the January 6th Capitol riot, which left five people dead, which was, of course, preceded by the Summer of Love, where there were a series of riots that took place uh, that took uh, human life as well as destroyed property. So let's uh, hope and pray 
uh, following the National Prayer Breakfast, that there is a bipartisan, comprehensive look at the core issues of our problem and a genuine seeking after God for wisdom and direction so far, for the most part, has not worked. Meanwhile, President Biden will end uh, U.S. support for the uh, Saudi-led offensive operations in Yemen. His national security advisor announced earlier today it marks a withdrawal from support for a Saudi-led coalition fighting Houthi rebels in the war-torn country of Yemen. Now, this has been a controversy for quite some time. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters that the president will announce an end to American support for offensive operations there. He's also going to make the announcement as part of a wide-ranging speech at the State Department. That took place this afternoon. I say that in sort of a time warp because we record the program earlier in the afternoon. This event will have taken place, and then you'll hear the broadcast. So he will have made that address this afternoon. That is a promise he made in the campaign that will be uh, he'll be following through on Sullivan said during a White House press briefing earlier in the day. Well, as an example, he pointed to the the stopping of two arms sales of precision guided munitions that were moving forward under the last administration. Well, the civil war there in Yemen, which has been ongoing since 2015, has led to the deaths of 112,000 people, has obliterated the country's infrastructure. According to U.N. estimates, they say 13.5 million Yemenis face food insecurity. It's not quite that simple a story, but that has been the fallout over these last, what, five years, six years since this um, conflict escalated. Well, House impeachment managers, they're requesting that former President Trump testify under oath at his trial before the Senate next week. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a break uh, momentarily. And I do want to remind you that in the second half of this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Albert Moeller, the prayer that turns the world upside down. Now, in view of uh, this morning's prayer breakfast, it might be a good idea to take a look at that particular prayer. He's referring, of course, to the Lord's Prayer as a manifesto for revolution. Now, is he talking about the violent overthrow of governments? Is he talking about toppling leaders? No, he's talking about that internal call on the life of every believer to submit to the God of the universe, who has, by the way, a specific plan um, that can alter the course of history, beginning with the interior of the individual who embraces him, comes before him as in faith, as a sinner, confessing one's sins, uh, and then the impact that um, it has the potential to have uh, outward. So that'll be uh, coming up later this hour as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, some of the stuff that's going on during, uh, during the day, but we'll also share a classic interview with Dr. Albert Moeller. Well, next week, of course, is impeachment 2.0. Whether or not it's constitutional will be certainly a centerpiece of that argument. But House impeachment managers, they're requesting that former President Trump, emphasis on former, testify under oath at his trial before the Senate next week. Now, the lead impeachment manager is Jamie Raskin from Maryland, Democrat, sent a letter to the former president requesting he testify about his action in uh, the lead up to the January 6th Capitol riot, either before or during the Senate impeachment trial. If you decline this invitation, we reserve any and all rights under the right to establish at trial that your refusal to testify supports a strong adverse uh, interference regarding your actions and inaction on January 6th. 
2021. Now, I don't know under these circumstances if an individual reserves the right not to incriminate himself, but this is the threat that's being issued. Trump is invited to respond by Friday, 5 p.m. Now, the House voted earlier, uh, well, I should say mid-January, the 13th to be more precise, to impeach President Trump. The vote 232-197 with 10 Republicans joining all of the Democrats. Now, the Senate impeachment trial will begin on the 9th, which is next Tuesday. Now, Raskin said in a statement that the president's legal team had denied incontrovertible facts about Trump's conduct leading up to uh, when pro-Trump rioters breached the Capitol. Now, Raskin wrote that impeachment managers would prefer the president provide testimony with cross-examination sometime between Monday, February 8th and Thursday, February 11th. Two days ago, you filed an answer in which you denied many factual allegations set forth in the article of impeachment. Of course, that's uh, the crux of the debate, whose facts are accurate. You have thus attempted to put critical, uh, critical facts at issue, notwithstanding the clear and overwhelming evidence of your constitutional offense, Raskin wrote. In other words, you're already guilty. Just um, affirm what we are alleging. Well, the answer denies that... Um, Uh, Trump violated his oath of office while also saying that he was protected by the First Amendment in response to claims he incited an insurrection. Thus, the back and forth, the trial that will be an impeachment moving forward or not, hearing or not, we don't really know, given that at least 45 Republicans have uh, objected, saying that an individual who is now a civilian cannot be impeached. Well, in battle, GOP Representative Liz Cheney didn't apologize for her vote three weeks ago to impeach then-President Donald Trump. And in the end, she didn't need to. The House Republican Conference chair on Wednesday night easily survived a push by House GOP Trump loyalists to strip her of a number of um, leadership positions, uh, or I should say her number three leadership position. Well, in a secret ballot vote by the entire House Republican Conference, only about 60 61 members voted to strip her of her leadership role with 145 supporting her. Well, Cheney was under fire over her vote three weeks ago to impeach President Trump on the charge of inciting the January 6th insurrection at the White House, or rather the Capitol, by extremists and other Trump supporters. She was the most senior of the 10 Republicans who joined all 222 House Democrats to impeach then-President Trump, with 197 GOP representatives voting against impeachment. Well, on the eve of the vote, The three-term congresswoman from Wyoming said that Trump summoned this mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. She stressed that there has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to be to the Constitution. Well, heading into the gathering and the anti-Cheney ringleaders said that more than half of all House Republicans would back a potential resolution to strip her of her position. Fell short of that. During the hearing, uh, which was hours long, the meeting, I should say, she told her colleagues, I won't apologize for the vote. Multiple congressional sources confirmed. She was later asked off camera if she regrets her vote to impeach Donald Trump. And she said defiantly, no, she did not. You don't regret it at all? She responded, no. So she has retained her position. Meanwhile, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican out of Georgia, said she regretted her past statements on QAnon conspiracy theories, and they do not represent her beliefs today. This was in a floor speech before the House was to take a vote to strip her from committee assignments. These were words of the past, and these things do not represent me, she said in her first House uh, floor speech 
um, of contrition on Thursday. They do not represent my district. They do not represent my values. She's a freshman. She represents the northwest uh, portion of Georgia. She sought to introduce herself to the House as a regular American who didn't trust the government and media and went down a wrong path with QAnon conspiracies that she now regrets. She said, I was allowed to believe things that weren't true, and I would ask questions, questions about them and talk about them, and that is absolutely what I regret. If it weren't for the Facebook posts and comments that I liked in 2018, I wouldn't be standing here today. And you couldn't point a finger and accuse me of anything wrong because I've lived a very good life and I'm proud and my family uh, and my family's proud as well. Well, Green said she's since walked away from QAnon. And when she ran for Congress in 2020, she never campaigned on any of the conspiracies that she posted in 2018. She said school shootings are real. The 9-11 terrorist attacks did happen despite her past comments that question both. I think it's important for all of us to remember none of us is perfect. Well, her comments came as the House was set to vote on removing her from her two committee assignments, the Committee on Education and Labor and the House Budget Committee. Democrats say they're focused to act since Republicans have refused to penalize her for her past statements. Case in point, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday ripped into his Democratic colleagues for refusing to consider a compromise regarding stripping the representative of her committee assignments. I understand that Marjorie's comments have caused deep wounds to many, and as a result, I offer the Majority Leader Hoyer a path to lower the temperature and address these concerns. Instead of coming together to do that, the Democrats are choosing to raise the temperature by taking the unprecedented step to further their partisan power grab regarding the committee assignments of the other party. Well, Green, infamous for her support of the QAnon conspiracy in 2018, has come under fire since uh, reports that the Georgia Congresswoman held these views. Well, House Democrats announced on Wednesday that a floor vote would be held today to remove her from her committee assignments. McCarthy reportedly offered to remove her from the House Education and Labor Committee if the Democrats agreed not to move forward with the House floor vote to remove her from the Budget Committee as well. Now, as at the time that we are recording this program, it's not clear what the outcome will be. If that is made known before we're finished, we'll let you know. Uh, But her contrition may play a significant role in the outcome, given the fact that she says she no longer holds those views and began to back away from them as uh, late as 2018. We'll continue to follow the story. Well, Senate Republicans are set to force Democrats to cast votes on a variety of potentially uncomfortable topics in the coming days. Conciliation process the Democrats are using to advance President Biden's coronavirus stimulus plan while getting around a filibuster. Well, debate on the budget resolution started Wednesday. It's going to continue in the Senate today. And after that time expires, Senate Minority Whip John Thune predicted that um, uh, will happen shortly after lunch, a process called a votorama begins. Kind of feels like middle school, doesn't it? A votorama. Well, during that time, any senior is entitled to file an amendment to the resolution, which could result in dozens of votes on various provisions going late into the night and even early into Friday morning. Republicans strongly oppose the fact that Democrats are using reconciliation to advance the stimulus, the coronavirus stimulus, and therefore plan to use the votorama as a way to punish Democrats, extracting a pound of flesh by forcing them into uncomfortable votes and conversations. The new president talks a lot about unity, they say, but his White House staff and congressional leadership are working from the opposite playbook. That's a quote from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying of the budget reconciliation process, we'll be discussing the facts. Senate Republicans will be ready and waiting with a host of amendments to 
improve the rushed procedural steps that's being jammed through, some of which uh, do not relate to the coronavirus at all, he and other Republicans are arguing. Meanwhile, the president has extended a uh, pause on federal student loan payments and interest through September 30th. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ayanna Presley on Thursday urged President Biden to use his executive authority, which, of course, is not fixed. It can be reversed at some future point to cancel up to fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt for federal student loan borrowers. Chuck Schumer, Warren Presley on Thursday reintroduced a resolution which would allow the secretary of education to cancel up to fifty thousand. The resolution also called on Biden to take executive action. Uh, to administratively cancel that amount in federal student loan for federal student loan borrowers using existing legal authorities under the Higher Education Act of 1965. The resolution also encourages Biden to use executive authority under the Internal Revenue Code of 1986, which would prevent administrative debt cancellation from resulting in a tax liability for borrowers. Now, we'll talk um, next week about the efficacy and the morality of canceling student loan and who actually pays if that were to be the case. But for now, I should mention that more than four dozen Democratic lawmakers in both the House and the Senate joined the resolution on Thursday, saying the student loan debt is weighing down millions of families in New York and across the country. This is a quote from Chuck Schumer during a time of historic and overlapping crises, which is disproportionately impacting communities of color. You always have to throw that in because then it uh, moves it in a different direction. We must do everything in our power, he says, to deliver real relief to the American people, lift up our struggling economy and, of course, not um, waste any opportunity to move the liberal agenda forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Dr. Albert Moeller, the prayer that turns the world upside down, the Lord's Prayer as a manifesto for revolution. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Lord's Prayer is one of the best known prayers in scripture. We often recite it, but the question is, do we understand what we're saying? When you think back, the disciples who heard this prayer for the very first time, the words of Jesus, the prayer had to have been something of a thunderbolt. It was a radical new way to pray, and it changed them, and it changed the course of history. But for many of us, it's pretty much lost on us. Well, in his new book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, Dr. Albert Moeller, he dissects each line to share rich theological truths about the character of God and his desire to have a relationship with his creation. Found in the heart of the Sermon of the, uh, on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer was taught by the person most qualified to teach about that prayer, Jesus himself. Its words were carefully chosen to reveal the appropriate way to communicate with the Father. It's the shortest prayer in the Bible, but the words are powerful and call for radical change and the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven. Well, Dr. Albert Moeller is an author and professor. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He holds a BA from Stanford, from Samford University, an MDiv and PhD degrees from Southern Seminary, and is the Joseph Emerson Brown Professor of Christian Theology at Southern Seminary. He hosts two programs, The Briefing and Thinking in Public. He's the author of many books, including He Is Not Silent, Preaching in a Postmodern World, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters, and uh, many more. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. We're talking, of course, about the Lord's Prayer. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for being with us today. Georgine, it's always wonderful to be with you. Thank you. 
You quote in the introduction of the book, Gary Miller, who has uh, written some helpful resources on prayer and goes so far as to argue that the evangelical church is slowly but surely giving up on prayer. I guess it goes to the heart of why you've written a book on the Lord's Prayer and whether or not we today believe that prayer is relevant, important, or accept that we're walking in disobedience if we fail to engage in it. You know, I found uh, getting ready to uh, to teach the Lord's Prayer and to, to write on it, I, I found a lot of encouragement from the fact that even the disciples of Jesus had to ask Jesus how to pray. In the Gospel of Luke, they go to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray, even as John the Baptist taught mm-hmm. his disciples to pray. And that really encourages me, because uh, that, that quote you mentioned from Gary Miller, uh, I think there are a lot of Christians who are very frustrated with their prayer life. They're confused, they don't know how to pray, and uh, well, thanks be to God, Jesus himself taught us how to pray. So we ought to pay a lot of attention to that prayer and, and to how Jesus taught his own disciples to pray. Let's talk about the consequence of failing to pray. I mean, it, it, there's something lost in us and for us if we fail to walk in obedience in this area of prayer. What do we what do we lose? What do we give up? You know, Georgine, that's so true. Just th- just think of, a, of the relationship between a child and a parent. How could that relationship be healthy in any sense if there's not constant conversation and communication. Now, God speaks to us in His Word, the Bible, first and foremost, but He also calls us to come before Him in in prayer. He speaks to us in Scripture. We get to speak back to Him in prayer, and Jesus tells us how to do that. And and furthermore, we're missing the fact that uh, it's a a command, by the way. Prayer Mm -hmm. is not a suggestion. It's a command, uh, but it's a command like all of God's commands. It comes with a blessing. I mean, we don't know who we are as uh, as God's children by Christ uh, until we learn how to go to him in prayer and and to find that just an indispensable part of our lives. Yeah. You write that prayer is difficult and like anything of great value, prayer takes great effort, tremendous care and spirit-filled discipline. Before Jesus engaged in teaching his disciples how to pray, um, he taught them how not to pray. And maybe we should begin there. Some things we need to avoid in this uh, effort to uh, walk in obedience in the area of prayer. You know, Jesus taught his disciples not to pray in a way to draw attention to ourselves. That's important to know. We don't have to clamor to get God's attention. He, he wants us to come to him as his children in prayer. Jesus said that we're not to just use empty phrases and pile up words. I, th- I think we've all heard people pray, in which we can just be honest. It sounds like piling up words as if God's impressed with the sheer volume. Instead, it's amazing. Jesus gave us a prayer as a model that can be prayed in 20 seconds. Now, that doesn't mean that our prayer life is to be limited to 20 seconds. It, it, it is, however, very clear that Jesus says, look, you can get right to the point. And, uh, and he says, so when you pray, go into your closet, not to be seen. It's a personal relationship with your Creator. It doesn't mean we literally have to be in a closet, but it does mean we're not praying to be seen. We're praying to be heard by an audience of one. And uh, what? And then the way he teaches his disciples to pray is just stunning. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Jesus didn't tell us to pray this way, we wouldn't dare pray this way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you uh, point out that um, as we're called to pray, uh, that the prayer itself raises a host of theological issues. What are we trying to do in prayer? Are we trying to convince God to do what he otherwise would not be inclined to do? Or are we trying to negotiate with God? W- the primary question is, what is the purpose in our praying? Well, the purpose in our praying is, first of all, obedience, and I really appreciate you asking the question. The first, uh, the, the first reason we pray is not because there's something we want to get out of prayer immediately, but rather it's, it's like a father summoning his children. We, 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 we go because he's our father, and, uh, and, and then we realize 
how amazing is it that the Lord God creator of the universe invites us in Christ to pray to him as our father? It's just a stunning thing. We wouldn't dare do it if Jesus didn't tell us we could pray that way. And uh, and, and we pray because uh, God uses prayer in order to make us Christians uh, in developing, that is, mature Christians. He grows us into discipleship, uh, partly by means of prayer. And so uh, to, to miss this is to miss this, one of the central acts of a faithful Christian and one of the greatest gifts God's given his, his children. The subtitle of your book is um, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. Why is the Lord's Prayer revolutionary? And perhaps we don't hear it in the same way because it's so familiar that the disciples did when Jesus first uttered those words in answer to their question. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's clear the disciples didn't at first even understand what Jesus was saying. He said, when we pray, you, you, when we are to pray, our Father who's in heaven, may your name be made holy, hallowed be your name. And then we're to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means the end of, of Caesar. That means the end of every principality and power. That means that at the end of the day, it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that is, that is the only reality. And we're praying to see that right Right now, we dare to pray, regardless of who's president or, or who's Caesar or prime minister, regardless of what is happening in the world, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And that means right now on earth as it is in heaven. That's just astounding. And, 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 and no matter when or where we pray it, it, it means the end of every political power that would oppose him. Mm. Mm. Now, we begin um, authentic prayer with acknowledging um, God the Father and hallowing his name. Let's start at the beginning, as Jesus uh, said, this is where we begin in our approach to God as he invites us to, uh, to pray. You know, I don't have the right on my own as a rebellious, sinful human being to call God Father. Uh, to be granted that privilege is just unspeakable. And Jesus says, because you're mine and because the Father is my Father, uh, you go before him and you pray, our Father. Oh, and by the way, that our means the most important unit. It's not the first person singular. It's not my Father who is in heaven. It's our Father. And you know, that's so important because, Georgine, that means that if we are faithful as Christians in praying, we're praying with every faithful Christian who's ever lived. It's, it's the, the, the prayers of all of Christ's people. Uh, we're praying together, our Father. And then we're saying he's in heaven. It, it, it points to the fact of his transcendence. Hallowed be your name, which that's a language we don't use too much anymore, but it means may your name be made, be made holy. And that means visibly holy. That means, God, we want your name to be famous in the earth. And uh, wow, that's quite a prayer. Well, isn't it, though? Um, you point out that um, we should make note of one last important feature of this passage. We do not name God. He names himself. And uh, this may seem like an odd observation, but it has enormous theological implication. Explain that. Well, God doesn't say uh, through Christ that we are to pray to him merely our parent who is in heaven, but rather our father. He names himself as father. And, uh, and, and of course, we know God doesn't have a body. That doesn't mean that he's male, but it does mean that he gave us one picture to think of. And, uh, and, and that's the fact that he is our heavenly father. And uh, that's just really important. We don't get to rename him. You've got uh, feminist theologians saying, yes. look, that's patriarchal and, and we ought to call, you know, God the divine parent or whatever. He didn't name himself the divine parent. He named himself uh, our father who is in heaven. 
We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Albert Moeller, his latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And perhaps as we revisit the prayer and think more deeply about what Jesus is actually saying, we can appreciate more fully what it means to approach the throne of grace in prayer. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Albert Moeller. His latest book, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, uh, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And he takes the prayer word by word, phrase by phrase, and helps us to fully appreciate what Jesus taught his disciples and by extension us uh, in how to pray. Now, Dr. Moeller, uh, the uh, prayer goes on to make reference to the kingdom of God, your kingdom come. What does that mean uh, when Jesus tells us to pray your kingdom come? You know, it means that we are declaring, first of all, the fact that his kingdom is coming and that his kingdom will be the the only reality eternally that will last. And we're, we're praying to see it. Uh, you know, we, we pray your kingdom come. And, and then the next words help to explain what we mean by that. Your will be done. God's reign is where his will is absolutely obeyed. We're praying to see that take place. Uh, and, you know, Georgine, one of the first things is that's what every church should look like. Every single church, every single Christian family, every single Christian marriage should look like an outpost where the kingdom of heaven is becoming visible. And uh, there's something really sweet about that. I I think it's really encouraging to, to Christians to know that we're not just praying that his kingdom will come in the day of judgment. We're praying that his kingdom will come in our lives, in mm-hmm. our families, in our marriages, in our churches right now. And that is such a radical idea because it's not only uh, indicating that his kingdom is coming and being born out in us, but it's also declaring, as you mentioned earlier, that an end is coming to the world and its system. And that has to be very threatening to those outside of the kingdom. Absolutely. And and, and furthermore, it's one of those situations in which uh, we better be careful what we pray for. We better not pray that unless we mean it. And, uh, and of course, Christians do mean it. We, we, we pray to see God's kingdom come. And, and look, that means a mighty reversal. Just look at the parables of Jesus. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. When, when God's kingdom comes, things are going to be ordered radically differently than they are according to the kingdoms of this world. Let's talk about forgiveness. Um, what does the Lord's Prayer teach us about forgiveness? Well, you know, it gets to our need, and it points out that one of our most important needs is for God's forgiveness. You know, in, in the New Testament, John tells us that if we confess our sins, He, meaning the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says that we need regularly to pray that God will forgive us our sins, our, our debts, our trespasses. But the word debt is really important there because it's the picture of our sin. Uh, we, we are in debt to Christ, a debt we could not pay. And, uh, and then if we have experienced God's grace in Christ uh, through his atonement, then uh, we are also to demonstrate that to others. So we're told, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. That's that's a powerful indictment, a, a humbling reminder. Oh, absolutely. Let's explore this. Give us um, give us this day our daily bread, because we are very independent. We're in the 21st century. We're Americans. We provide for ourselves. We have an independent streak. And uh, what does it mean in the context of the Christian faith when we say give us this day our daily bread? 
You know, I, I know exactly the point you're making, Georgine, and you're exactly right. But it, we, we have the uh, appearance, the illusion of self-sufficiency. Yes. <laughs> uh, in reality, uh, we can't make a single seed give forth uh, a grain. We, we, we can't make anything. We, we take it for granted we can go to the, the supermarket and get whatever we need. But the Bible was written to people, the vast majority of whom, uh, we're in what we now call food insecurity. Uh, th- th- they did not know where their next meal was coming from. And and we're in a position, we should be thankful for that, where we, we do have uh, uh, a lot to eat. But we need to remember where it comes from, and we need to remember how fragile that is. All, you know, Americans thought that they had the food problem licked, and then the Dust Bowl came mm-hmm. in the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, we, we can find ourselves hungry very, very quickly. But, you know, Jesus pointed out, in, in fact, he said, you know, worry less about your stomach than about your soul. Uh, the, the hunger of our bodies is actually pointing to an even deeper hunger, and uh, that's a spiritual hunger. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the more um, puzzling phrases in the Lord's Prayer to many is the the notion that uh, we pray, lead us not into temptation. It implies perhaps that otherwise we would be led by God himself into temptation. Explain why Jesus included that in the prayer and what he's telling us. Yeah, you know, where it's helped here, we interpret Scripture by Scripture. Yes. So in the book of James, we're told that no one who sins is going to be able to say that he or she sinned because God tempted him. And, and the language is important here. I love the King James Bible. Uh, I've memorized so much of the King James Bible. But we use words differently than, uh, than a lot of people, even speaking English, use them in 1611. So the better translation there would be, lead us not into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. So it's it's not that, uh, that that God tempts us as if he's hoping we'll sin in order that he can judge us, uh, but it's like the book of Job. That's the best way to understand it. God allowed Job to be tested. Jesus said it's all right to pray that that testing, you know, uh, uh, not come and, uh, and uh, in our lives. In, in in full volume, certainly testing comes into every one of our lives. Uh, to, to be tested is uh, is to to be shown authentic in faith. But the most important thing is Jesus says, "Pray, but deliver us from the evil one." It's not just from evil; it's it's from the evil one, and uh, we need that rescue from the evil one every single day. You know, I, I think of as a parent puts a child to sleep at night. You want to pray. You know, deliver this little one from the evil one. Uh, Protect this little one. And as much as we pray that for our children, we need to pray it for ourselves. Yes, yes. What does the Lord's Prayer teach us about the character of God? You know, I think that the first thing is, is that God, who is perfect in every way, righteous and holy, invites us in Christ. And by the way, it's a prayer for Christians. It, it's for those who have come to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and, and have repented of their sins and are His. It's the invitation to come before a God who loves us and wants us. What it says about God's character is exactly what's revealed in Scripture, that uh, He is a holy and righteous God who's a God of mercy and of grace. And by that mercy and grace, we get to go and pray hallowed be your name. May your name be made, be made holy. And that means in us. In other words, may the world see the power of God's salvation in us. We began our conversation just uh, focusing for a moment on the fact that uh, evangelicals in America today are largely prayerless or pray very little. What advice do you give to those of us who want to become better at prayer and yet have perhaps struggled or abandoned uh, the, the notion altogether? 
I, I end where I began. I, I am just so encouraged by the fact that Jesus' own disciples who were with him and saw him pray uh, had to ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and so we, we understand that prayer is something we learn. And so I think a lot of evangelicals who don't pray or who feel very powerless or, or unfaithful in prayer, it's because their expectations of prayer are, are, are something very unrealistic. Instead, it's a conversation with God. It's time we spend with our Maker and our Redeemer. And Jesus said, when you pray, don't pile up a bunch of words. Don't try to impress God with, uh, with language. Instead, just pray like this. Simple prayer, reciting the gospel, reminding who God the Father is, asking that his kingdom come, his will be done, asking for daily bread and for the forgiveness of sins and, and for protection. You know, it's, it's just the sweetest gift Christ gave his disciples. I think, I think it's just, you know, for evangelicals, I would say this. Jesus wanted his disciples to learn by this prayer how to have a life of prayer. And, uh, and it starts with that small prayer we could say in 20 seconds. Well, I thank you so much for reintroducing this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And again, by extension, uh, inviting us into God's presence using this uh, this simple prayer. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us here today. Georgine, thank you. It's always good to be with you. Thanks, Dr. Moeller. Again, the book is titled A Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down, The Lord's Prayer as a Manifesto for Revolution. And it really begs uh, the question, what is our prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? I know as I've uh, gone through the book, it's uh, it's caused me to rethink, am I uh, taking seriously the command of Christ to pray. We didn't talk about it in our conversation, but Matthew six thirteen tells us, Thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory, and we know how that goes. Many Christians who regularly say the Lord's Prayer in church services every week or remember a version uh, they memorized as a child recite, concluding the words that don't appear in uh, some of the modern translations, but it's an important um, end um, uh, to a very important prayer. He writes in the book that um, how we pray and the very act of praying uh, is a theological uh, statement, and his book certainly walks us through the theology of praying. He writes that every generation of Christians must learn to make the request, like the disciples before them, Lord, teach us to pray. Every generation of Christians must also remember that Jesus' response to that question now is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. If we would have the Lord himself teach us how to pray, then we must turn to the Lord's Prayer for instruction. As the book has shown, each petition is a theology lesson, lesson rather in itself. None of Jesus' words were careless, and this is particularly true of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer turned the world upside down. This prayer is dangerous, overturning the kingdom of the principalities of the powers of the world. This prayer is hopeful, expecting the kingdom of God to come in fullness with Christ on the throne. This prayer is compassionate, teaching us to call God our Father and depend on Him for our every meal. This prayer is reverent, showing that nothing is more sacred than the name of God. This prayer is good news, reminding each of us that God forgives sin and delivers us from the powers of darkness. The prayer that turns the world upside down. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up later in the second half, we're going to talk with the author of The Gospel for Muslims, an encouragement to share Christ with confidence, the B.D. Eniboali. I, I try to rush through the name as if I can say it well, but I need to slow down. The B.D. Eniabwile is the name of the author, and I apologize for butchering that beautiful name with my Western um, limitations. 
Well, U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is facing criticism over initial claims that she made about the January 6th Capitol riot, with many noting she actually wasn't inside the Capitol when it happened. We've heard now that she, uh, you know, the harrowing experience that she had and her life being threatened, and she's accused a member of Congress of threatening her life and so on. Well, the controversy erupted after she posted a video in which she described a confrontation with Capitol Police at her office, which is located not in the Capitol itself, but at the Cannon Building elsewhere on the Capitol complex. In other words, this had nothing to do with what was happening at the Capitol Building at the time. On Wednesday, she faced a wave of backlash from critics like Representative Nassie Mace, who's a Republican out of South Carolina, who tweeted that insurrectionists never stormed the hallway that she shares with Ocasio-Cortez. The hashtag Alexandria Ocasio-Smullett also trended, an apparent comparison to actor Jesse Smullett, who falsely claimed to be the victim of a hate crime. Well, Nikki Haley is hit out at AOC for her dangerous call to rein in media, saying it's a clear shot at non-liberal outlets. And she, AOC, has also requested, or rather questioned, if a Capitol Police officer tried to put her in a vulnerable situation. This on the same day that we laid one of them to rest for laying his life down to protect members at the Capitol. Parler's CEO, John Matsey, says that he's been terminated. See, he didn't participate in the decision, and there's some dispute over how the whole thing went, but the social media platform that's popular with many conservatives, or at least was, has terminated the CEO, John Matsey, according to a memo sent to staffers that have, uh, has been attained by media. On the 29th of January, 2021, the parlor board, controlled by Rebecca Mercer, decided to immediately terminate my position as CEO of Parlor. I did not participate in this decision, he wrote. I understand that those who now control the company have made some communications to employees and other third parties that have unfortunately created confusion and prompted me to make this public statement. Well, Matsy wrote that in recent months, he has been met with constant resistance to his original vision for the platform following Amazon Web Services' decision to shut Parlor down for failure to moderate egregious content related to the January 6th Capitol riot, which is really interesting to me because the vast majority of content regarding the um, events that took place wasn't on that platform, it was on others. But anyway, over the past few months, I've met constant resistance to my product vision, my strong belief in free speech, and my view of how the parlor site should be managed. For example, I advocated for more product stability and what I believe is a more effective approach to content moder- uh, moderation, he wrote. Well, Parler didn't respond to a request for comment immediately, but there has been some sense, there has been some questioning of his version of events. Well, the CEO has also been barred from the platform um, back end during the big tech crackdown. We don't have any more access, uh, they went on to say. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki defended uh, President Biden's vast majority are decent comments referring to FBI agents, not very aptly, but nonetheless made the attempt. And Olympia's mayor has called the forcible occupation of the hotel there domestic terrorism. Now, labeling it thus is one thing. How you respond to what it, what's happened is another. We'll continue to follow that story. And a Wisconsin middle school has apologized for an activity asking students how they'd punish a slave. Now, slavery has been abolished in this country. I'm not sure the efficacy of the question or what the point was, but 
Anyway, they've apologized. A hedge fund founder has pled guilty in a Neiman Marcus tied case. I know James Blend does a lot of his shopping at Neiman Marcus. PayPal profit tops the estimates with record online spending. And Democrats are planning to introduce a plan to erase about $50,000 of student debt. You don't really erase it. It's just shifted. I just want to make that point. We'll get into it uh, perhaps next week in greater detail. One person who actually benefited by the $50,000 will not be responsible for repaying and keeping the commitment they made, but it will be paid by others. Well, Kroger is closing two of its Southern California stores rather than give extra $4 hero pay, which they had originally promised. Well, climate czar John Kerry is defending the use of a private jet because when you're somebody like John Kerry on that level of status, well, exceptions just simply have to be made. Well, President Biden's uh, recently appointed climate czar John Kerry took a private jet to Iceland in 2019 to receive the Arctic Circle Award for climate leadership. The incident had not been previously reported in the American press because, well, it was unflattering. Kerry defended his high pollution uh, ride at the time, calling it the only choice for someone like me. Wow, someone like me, Uh, someone like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. Commercial air travel, uh, just it's a thought. I'm just saying it for the sake of consideration for someone like me who is traveling the world to win this battle. In an interview that has since resurfaced, well, the incident hadn't been previously reported in the American press, but what I'm doing almost full time, he continued, is working to win the battle on climate change. And in the end, if I offset and contribute my life to do this, it's not going to be um, put on the defensive. Well, he's kind of on the defensive now. Brett Hume points out that Kerry's explanation um, uh, condescends. Uh, I'm so important to the climate that I have to fly private and um, emissions aside. With the ACLU, ACLU rather, is backing uh, um, men competing against women. Uh, they fired off a series of tweets that redefined science to fit the feelings of men who want to be women. Christian Summer says the ACLU is so broken. And Abigail Shire points out fact, not one of these ACLU facts is a fact. David Harsinyi says, I don't really care what people call themselves or believe until they start compelling others to engage in their role playing, destroying scholarship chances of hardworking young women. Here, here. Apparently, AOC was never in the building during the breach. I thought it bore repeating, despite her claim that rioters entered her office, forcing her to hide. Uh, Daily Wire points out that um, said that Wednesday, the red state report on her whereabouts during the Capitol breach was manipulative. That's how she's explaining it. She wasn't there. And people pointing out that she wasn't there. And to do so, it was manipulative. This is the latest manipulative take on the right, she wrote. They are manipulating the fact that most people don't know the layout of the Capitol complex. In fact, she was counting on that. We were all on the Capitol complex, but they weren't all in the Capitol building where the attack took place. The attack wasn't just on the dome, she says. The bombs Trump supporters planted surrounded our offices, too, which doesn't really fit the scenario of being... Uh, targeted. But anyway, the Federalist says the hashtag Alexandria Ocasio-Smollett became a top trend on Twitter Wednesday as users connected the dots to find that the New York Congresswoman wasn't in the Capitol building during her near-death experience. She may have tripped and fallen down the stairs. We don't really know what happened. Senate Democrats are urging um, Biden to reconsider killing the Keystone Pipeline. Senator John Tester of Montana knows well the damage it's doing in the high-paying jobs. Tester said the pipeline has the potential to support thousands of good-paying jobs, increase tax revenue into local uh, communities, and support a safer, more efficient alternative to transporting fossil fuel by truck or railroad. 
Environmental groups, on the other hand, see the XL shutdown as just the beginning of their attack on the pipeline. Coronavirus cases are plummeting, down 44% in the U.S. and 30% globally in the past three weeks. That's good news. Meanwhile, the story claims the CDC hasn't um, identified any incidents of the vaccine causing a death. Well, a poll reveals California, uh, California's governor rather is underwater. Gavin Newsom, once popular, now has just 46% approval in the state, as fewer than a third see him as doing a good job handling the pandemic. And Elon Musk says brain chip implants could start this year. Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk says his uh, brain computer inter, um, interface, I was going to say interference, I think that might be more accurate, his uh, brain computer interface startup, Neuralink, could kick off human trials as early as this year if things go well. In quotes, if things go well, the San Francisco Bay Area based startup co-founded by Musk in 2016 is uh, aiming to implant a computer interface in the human brain to help treat neurological conditions like Alzheimer's, dementia and spinal cord injuries. In the long term, the company is looking to achieve a degree of symbiosis between humans and artificial intelligence. What could possibly go wrong? Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up uh, in our next couple of segments, we're going to talk with author Thabiti Iniabuile. <laughs> oh, rats. Iniabuile. The gospel for Muslims and encouragement to share Christ with confidence. That's what I need is a little confidence. Well, again, returning to headlines, unity, that seems to be the word of the day, starting with the inauguration a couple, a few days ago. Democrats passed the budget resolutions that are needed to bypass the GOP on their big COVID spending package. So we'll see how that plays out. And healing, Biden's social justice department is sending a message that some racism is okay with their dropped Yale lawsuit. If you happen to be Asian, well, you just have to deal with it. Well, to her credit, Marjorie Taylor Greene has apologized for past fanning of QAnon conspiracies. We'll see how that plays out. And Liz Cheney easily survived the push to strip her of her House GOP leadership position. Experts are recommending that President Biden appoint a reality czar to tackle disinformation. You know, I wish we had a laugh track right about now because that would be the perfect place to put one. A reality czar to tackle disinformation. Politicians. So overconfident. AOC is facing backlash as critics point out that she wasn't even in the Capitol building during the riots. And the Obama Center in Chicago, estimated at a half a billion dollars, that's $174 million of which will be footed by taxpayers, is going to break ground this year despite complaints from the little people. And a major gun rights group, Virginia Citizens Defense League, they've been banned from Facebook without explanation. Of course, Facebook will probably just say this headline is missing context. That way you don't have to offer an explanation. Where is Biden's realities are when you need him? Well, new COVID infections have fallen 45 percent in the U.S., but vaccines are not the main driver. A meme to urban centers. Teachers don't need COVID vaccines for safe school reopenings, according to the CDC. Yeah, teachers don't need COVID vaccines for safe school reopenings, according to the CDC. We have to decide, does science matter? Does it not matter? Is it fungible? Does it, you know, political ideology? Where does that all? But again, the CDC says teachers don't need COVID vaccines for safe school reopenings. Now, if you're a teacher and you don't want to go back, you may have a whole list of reasons why. I'm just quoting 
what the CDC is saying. And McKinsey has reached $573 million settlement with states for its role in marketing opioids. Rushing cheating notwithstanding, the U.S. has signed a five-year New START nuclear arms treaty renewal. I know I feel a lot safer. Europe troop withdrawal plans have been put on hold, the top general is saying. And the Biden administration is planning to reopen immigrant overflow facilities, once politically dubbed kids in cages. Now, it depends on whose name is at the top of the administration. If it's Obama, it's called one thing, an overflow facility. If your name is Trump, it's called kids in cages. It's going to be dubbed something else, of course this time around under the new media-friendly administration. And the new defense secretary has arbitrarily called for a 60-day assessment of extremism within the military. Well, GameStop losses inevitably piled up for small investors after this stock plunged 70% in two days, and another 779,000 Americans have filed for unemployment this last week. Around the nation, Texas has been temporarily blocked from kicking abortion mill Planned Parenthood out of uh, Medicaid and a bill requiring sex education to begin with kindergarten to be uh, filed in Illinois in their legislature. San Francisco is suing its own school district to force a reopening plan. We'll see how that goes. Didn't work so well elsewhere. Well, on this day in history, 1783, Britain's King George III rather, proclaims a formal cessation of hostilities in the American Revolutionary War. 1789, electors choose George Washington to be the first president of the United States. 1861, delegates from six southern states that had recently seceded from the, Uni- the Union rather, meet in Montgomery, Alabama to form the Confederate States of America. 1944, Bronze Star Medal of uh, Honor, uh, honoring um, the heroic and meritorious achievements or service is authorized by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And 2004, on this day in history, the social network website Facebook has its beginning as Harvard student Mark Zuckerberg launches the Facebook. That's what it was called, the Facebook. Well, the U.S. is in the midst of one of the most chilling eras for American liberty in recent memory. Uh, if not our nation's entire history. Thomas Gallatin points out that specifically targeted is America's most foundational right, the right to freedom of speech enshrined in the First Amendment. If you can recall, we have one. The left is engaged in a serious attack against Americans' freedom to think and speak freely because those uh, some on the left accurately recognize that such freedom presents a roadblock to their lust for greater power and control over the country. It's as if George Orwell's 1984 wasn't merely a dystopian fiction, but a prophetic vision or a how-to manual. Well, since even before the election of Joe Biden, the media on the left has been stumping hard against allowing the free flow of information and ideas from the right, all in the name of preventing disinformation. In truth, this uh, semantics game being played is to justify silencing conservative speech didn't uh, begin recently. It started years ago with that dubious and intentionally misleading term, hate speech. Ending hate speech was the gateway through which uh, some on the left, particularly in media and now social media, began their campaign to erode America's commitment to First Amendment values. Today, the left's call to end hate speech has morphed into demands to end the spread of disinformation. Case in point comes via a recent New York Times article titled How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve Our Reality Crisis inflating conservatives and Trump supporters with fringe conspiracy theorists, theorists rather. The story author Kevin Roos advocates that Biden create a reality czar to tackle disinformation. 
In describing the agency run by this reality czar, Roos writes, for example, it could formulate safe harbor exemptions rather that would allow platforms to share data about QAnon and other conspiracy theory communities with researchers and government agencies without running afoul of privacy laws. And it could become the tip of the spear for the federal government's response to the reality crisis. So the federal government would clear up things for us. They'd tell us what's true, what's false, what's to be embraced and rejected. The irony and blatant hypocrisy at play here is down downright bewildering, so much so that one wonders if it wasn't a joke. Unfortunately, Roos and his ilk are dead serious. So back to the question of reality. Was it not the gray lady and her left media colleagues who insistently, incessantly rather, and without evidence for years prompted the conspiracy theory of Donald Trump's supposed collusion with Russia? How about prior to the 2020 election when the Times, as well as other left media outlets, refused to run any stories regarding the Hunter Biden a Biden laptop story going so far as to claim it had all the air marks of Russian disinformation only to discover that the FBI was indeed investigating Hunter Biden. Or how about observing the time stance on science or rather lack thereof? The time refuses to recognize the truth that the claim of transgenderism is not consistent with biological reality, going so far as to insist that the refusal to use and accept a gender dysphoric individual's preferred pronoun is tantamount to hate speech. Or take the issue of abortion. The Times continues to reject the scientific reality that life begins at the moment of conception. Furthermore, let's look at how the Times itself has been on the forefront of the left's disinformation campaign about its historical 1619 project as it worked to promote the academically popular, let unfounded and thoroughly racist critical race theory. I say that as an African-American woman. Well, the left's objective is to ensure that its narrative is is, um, promoted as fact while preventing conservatives or any others from being allowed to counter or challenge it. As the Wall Street Journal editorial board observes, intellectuals don't merely want the Biden administration to promote progressive policies flushed with power. They're now suggesting that government should police the flow of ideas and assume the authority to define reality itself. So bring on the truth commissions, and if any political minority group complains that the Ministry of Truth is biased, worry not. The reality czar, rather, can make quick work of such disinformation. No one individual, entity, or organization has the corner on all truth, facts, or reality. Our founding fathers, referring to the Constitutional Republic, recognized this, which is why they intentionally decentralized power and enshrined the right of every American to freely think and speak their mind. You might think, well, I'm not into politics. This has very little to do with me. But it will leach into every area of life, including your faith and the expression of your faith. Any person who would impose upon this freedom has only selfish ambition for power and control over others' minds. We need to be, dare I use the word, woke? (laughs) No, I won't. Anyway, something to think about. Up next, we'll talk with Thabiti Iniabwile, author of The Gospel for Muslims. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, suppose you had the opportunity to share the gospel with a Muslim today. Would you feel ready? Now, you probably wish you felt prepared and excited at the prospect, but instead, it's chances are you feel your chest tighten as the slight panic begins to set in. Well, what if my next guest says um, uh, we can be prepared? 
Most of us were thinking, what if I say the wrong thing? What if they ask questions I don't know the answers to? What if it's unbearably awkward? We've all asked these questions, but confident doesn't just happen. It comes from preparation. And in his latest book, The Gospel for Muslims, my next guest, a former Muslim who encountered Jesus, will equip you to evangelize with confidence by teaching you to marvel at the gospel and rely on the Holy Spirit, what questions to expect and how to answer them, and how to stand your ground with grace when it counts. The time now is to equip ourselves because our Muslim neighbors are waiting. My next guest is Thabiti Anyabwile. He is a pastor uh, at Anacosta River Church in Washington. He served as senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Grand Cayman, Cayman Islands, and as an assistant pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. In his book, The Gospel for Muslims, um, he, who himself was a convert, rather, from Islam to Christianity, instructs readers in ways to discuss the good news of Christ with our Muslim neighbors and friends, because they are here among us, and what a tremendous opportunity uh, we have. He says of the book that it was written for one basic point. As a Christian, you already know everything you need to know to effectively share the good news of Jesus Christ with Muslim people. Now let's uh, let's move forward. Thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, welcome. Well, it's a joy to join you. Thank you for having me. Well, I suppose the best place to start is a little bit of your testimony. You came from Islam into the Christian faith. Tell us a little of your story. Sure. I actually grew up in a nominally Christian home in the Bible Belt of the United States and uh, went off to college, and that's where I met um, some men who were quite intriguing to me. They were often at student events talking about the importance of caring for your family and living clean lives and serving God. And long story short, these were Muslim men. And my sophomore year, converted to Islam, became something of the campus Saul, and uh, was zealous for Islam throughout the rest of my undergraduate studies and a little while uh, later until one year during Ramadan, I'm up reading the Quran and ready to make uh, fast for the day. And as I'm sitting reading the Quran, I'm given this awareness that what I'm reading can't be true, that it admits too much about Jesus on the one hand, but denies too much about Jesus on the other hand. And that sent me into uh, a year or two of of trying to find answers inside of Islam initially, and failing that, it sent me into a year or so of um, waffling between agnosticism and atheism. And it was at that point that my wife and I, um, we got pregnant with what was to be our first child, uh, sadly, we miscarried that child, but it was uh, ultimately a mercy because in the midst of that humbling from the miscarriage, we heard the gospel preached, and in hearing the gospel preached, the Lord gave us new life. Mm. Now, you you made reference to the fact that Islam uh, related to Jesus in a particular way, Christianity in a different way, and I think that's part of what confuses a lot of Christians about even bringing up the gospel with their Muslim uh, neighbors and friends. Um, sometimes we use the same language but mean different things uh, by it. Your book really helps to clarify what does Islam teach, what does Christianity teach, and how do we communicate with our Muslim neighbors and friends uh, in a way that reflects the gospel and gives them an opportunity to consider the claims of Christ. I hope so. That's, that's really the point, is to sort of clarify the difference so that we can emphasize the truth. Um, and so we will often use the same language. Uh, we, we, for example, both believe that God is holy. Uh, we both believe that God is loving and merciful. Um, the Muslim, however, does not have anywhere near the sort of particular meaning that Christians have. We know that 
God has demonstrated his holiness, his justice, and at the same time, his mercy towards sinners in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we want to know what love is, we look to Jesus and his sacrifice uh, on, on our behalf. Our Muslim friends will use terms like uh, grace and, and forgiveness, but in Islam, that really is left to the whim of a, of a capricious God. Allah may weigh the scales and find us righteous, or he may weigh the scales and find us unrighteous. And in Islam, there is no assurance that we have been forgiven with God and reconciled with him. And so when the Christian talks about forgiveness, we, we mean what the Bible says, that God has removed our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. They, they were never attached to us. Uh, and that's because our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. He, he turns away God's anger uh, in his sacrifice, and he reconciles us to the Father. And because he was perfectly righteous, and we are now in him, the Father regards us as perfectly righteous, too. And so it's in clarifying the distinction so that we can emphasize the truth uh, that we begin to sort of break through the the sort of false and shallow pluralism that tries to make all religions the same when they're really not. One of the things that we're hearing sometimes from Christians that Allah and the God of the Bible um, are the same, that we are worshiping the same God. How do you respond to that? And would a Muslim make that claim? Yeah, no Muslim who really believes in Islam mm-hmm. and no Christian who really believes in Christianity would say they worship the same God. The Muslim friend will say that in believing in the Trinity, we have committed the highest blasphemy in Islam. We have assigned partners to Allah, um, and and they tend to think that Christians believe in a in effect, in three gods. But as a Christian, we understand that, no, there's only one God, yet he exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even that bit of information, that the Trinity is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to many Muslims, particularly if they are coming from uh, Muslim countries where there's a lot of folk or nominal Islam, that's a real surprise, because they think that Christians believe it's the Father, the Son, and Mary. Um, And so, again, sometimes the best evangelistic work we do is just giving simple definitions that clarify the difference so that we can press home the truth. Mm. Um, You uh, write about the Trinity and how that can be a significant roadblock to conversion and the important role that mystery and humility have, uh, the role that it plays in evangelism. Uh, Talk a little bit about our approach as we uh, attempt to, in love, extend the love of Christ and explain the gospel. Yeah, I, here I think it's really helpful. There's some common ground here with mm-hmm. our Muslim friends. We we both believe in revealed religions, that God has spoke and revealed himself in the Scripture. And so we both should have a posture of humbling ourselves beneath uh, God's Word. Well, then, if, if we can agree on that, the next thing then we have to agree on is just to say, well, shouldn't we then believe what God tells us about himself? And then we just open our Bibles, and we go to a place like Ephesians 1 or any number of other places where not only does God reveal himself as triune in nature, but all of redemption is tied up with the fact that he is triune. So in Ephesians 1, it's the Father who appoints salvation, it's the Son who accomplishes salvation, and it's the Spirit who applies salvation. So that, so there is no redemption unless God is triune in that way, and and that is that is radically different 
uh, again, from the from the sort of capricious and arbitrary nature uh, of God in Islam. Well, and you really I- encourage um, your Christian reader not to jettison the Trinity in order to make Christianity seem more appealing, because it is central to uh, making the distinction and to Christian theology. No, that's exactly right. And I think we've seen in, in recent years uh, missions organizations and translation uh, organizations really in an attempt not to offend, mm-hmm. um, sort of, not sort of, actually change the scripture, you know, dropping terms like father and son in their translations because they say in the Muslim mind that's confusion. And I would say, just humbly, we, 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 have no, we have no legitimate authority to play around with God's Word. And God has revealed Himself in precisely those terms, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and that the confusion that our Muslim neighbor has is actually an opportunity. Absolutely. It's an opportunity for us to clarify and explain, not to shrink away from the truth that God has given us. And have we forgotten the role that the Holy Spirit plays Amen. in ministering to the hearts of those who are hearing the gospel, perhaps for the first time? We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, The Gospel for Muslims, and Encouragement to Share Christ with Confidence. My guest is uh, Thabiti Anyabwiwatle, and we're going to be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're, we're talking about a must-read book if we want to take seriously the opportunity that God has given us, particularly right here in the Pacific Northwest, as the Muslim world is coming to us. We don't need to buy a ticket. We don't need to hop on a, a plane, but we have opportunity to minister to our Muslim neighbors and friends and co-workers. My guest, and I apologize for being so uh, careless with your name, is Thabiti Anyabwile. He is the author of The Gospel for Muslims and encouragement to share Christ with confidence. I think the next place uh, we should go is the, the, the question of who Jesus is. Who do you say that I am? You make a clear distinction between the Muslim and Christian understanding of Jesus, and it's essential that we understand what each of us means um, by the use of his name and how we clarify to our Muslim friends. Yeah, Georgine, that's exactly right. This is the question that determines eternity. Uh, this is the question that Jesus asks his, asks his disciples as the, the crowds and others are speculating uh, about his, his true nature and his true identity. And getting this right is pivotal. Our Muslim friends would say they honor Jesus as a prophet, as a great prophet, as a prophet even who did miracles. But they vehemently deny that Jesus is the Son of God. They would regard that as blasphemy. Well, in the scriptures, it's really quite plain. In the, in the Bible, it's really quite plain that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he has taken upon himself as our, our nature so that he can represent us before the Father, so that he can give the Father the obedience that we failed to give, and so that he could pay the penalty for our disobedience in our place. And so it's critical that he be both, uh, as he said he was, um, God and man, because he's representing us. He's the mediator between God and man, and no one can come to the Father except through him. This is what our Muslims deny, but this is the truth that saves us. It's believing that he is Lord, believing that he's crucified, believing that he was resurrected three days later, and believing that he's coming again to gather his bride. That is the good news. That is the, the, the hope that we have. Uh, and, and it is the way and the only way that we can be reconciled to God and know him as our father. 
Now, in terms of how Christians have been taught in evangelism, would you say that um, your book affirms the, what's common to us in terms of evangelism, or do you think there needs to be some alteration, in particular as we're ministering and sharing the gospel with our Muslim friends? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I, I think one of the things I want to encourage Christians to do is to use their Bibles in Muslim evangelism. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I met a Muslim who was certain that the Bible contained errors and that he could show them to me, I, I'd be a wealthy man. And uh, if I had a dollar more for every time that I've just simply read the, the passage they went to in its context, read four or five verses before, four or five verses after, if I had a dollar for every time doing that, answered the objection that they were raising, again, I'd, I'd be a wealthy man. So one of the things I want to say is just adjust your evangelism from sort of argumentation mm-hmm. to Bible study. Let the Bible do the work. It's the Word that does the work. And then I would say one of the things we want to do is use biblical language to talk about conversion, to talk about what it really means to follow Jesus. So instead of saying things that Christians often say, uh, which, which are fine in their place, like you know, accepting, accepting Christ in your heart or things of that sort, use the more radical language of the Bible. Tell your Muslim friend, you must be born again. And one of the reasons you want to use that kind of language is, is because that language is not in Islam. This goes back to your earlier question mm-hmm. of how we sometimes have similar terms but really different meanings. Well, the way the Bible talks about conversion and faith um, that that's really unique to Christianity. It's it's not in Islam, and it's using those more radical word pictures for what it means to follow Jesus that helps sort of clarify um, the difference and and what we're talking about, and to sort of make clear the dramatic change that must take place uh, if if people are going to genuinely follow Jesus and possess this eternal life that he gives. We're talking about the book, The Gospel for Muslims, an encouragement to share Christ with confidence, and this book will equip you to do just that. Uh, my guest is Thabiti Anyabule. He is the uh, author uh, and a former Muslim himself. Now, the book is divided into two halves. The first deals with the gospel, the second as you witness, which brings to me to my next question. I think oftentimes we assume, because we've read the headlines and we see what's happening in the news, we assume there is a hostility toward Christianity, and we're reluctant to share our faith because we're not prepared for, for conflict. What should we expect, generally speaking? I'm overgeneralizing here, but is that presumption of hostility always a, a right one? No, it's not. Sometimes the best thing we can do for Muslim evangelism is turn off the news. Uh, we, we see these images of, of the most radical uh, mm-hmm. Muslims, uh, and that comes to dominate our imagination. But honestly, your Muslim neighbor uh, pretty much is just like you, made in God's image, made to know God, made to bring glory to God, uh, is if they're immigrants to the country, have largely come here for things that we sometimes take for granted, you know, in the sort of American dream and the opportunities that go along with that. They want good things for their kids and all that good stuff. And, and interestingly, many of them have a very natural sort of hunger to know what Christians actually believe. They, they may be coming from countries or backgrounds where they've never spoken with a Christian uh, about the Christian faith, or they've never been to a church service. And, and so like us, they often are operating on the worst stereotypes. Uh, and so one of the best things we can do then is just to simply uh, get the stereotypes out of the way, meet the person who's before you, get to know them, befriend them, be neighborly, practice neighbor love, 
and then just sort of watch how naturally that becomes a context for talking about Jesus and what he's done for us. One of the things you emphasis, emphasize, rather, and rightly, is the importance of hospitality and just extending friendship. It doesn't have to be so complicated. Uh, inviting people into your home can be a simple way of uh, extending friendship and beginning that conversation. That's exactly right. And, and for many of our Muslim friends, they're coming from cultures where hospitality is, is really a huge value. Um, and, and being hospitable is, is an honorable thing. And, and not being hospitable is, of course, dishonorable. And so we, we have in our Bibles and in, in the letters of the New Testament, for example, commands to be hospitable, to practice hospitality. That, that really should be done as a matter of, of kindness and love and considering our neighbors. And, and again, it should be done uh, with a genuine heart because that's what makes evangelism uh, not a project where we're simply trying to win an argument or, or get people to make a decision, but that's what makes evangelism a precursor to family and to relationship and to the community that the church ought to be. And so we should help, if they're new to our neighborhoods, we should help them uh, figure out where the utility companies are and, and to you know set up their homes. We should invite them to our kids' soccer games or, or baseball games. We should invite them to our churches. And as you said a moment ago, we should invite them into our homes. You know, most most Muslims who come to the country will often come as students. And it's to our shame that they will come and study for four, five, seven years, get multiple degrees, and never be in an American home, and much less never be in a Christian home. That, that really is a, a sad indicator that we are not perhaps practicing hospitality as generously as our Lord would have us. Your last chapter is uh, particularly uh, important to me. It's titled The Good News for African-American Muslims, many of whom uh, convert to Islam out of Christianity from uh, this country. And that's a growing concern for me as an African-American. What, what do you say uh, to those of us who are concerned and, and want to reach out to those who come to, to Islam from Christianity in this country? Yeah, you know, I think part of what we need is, well, we always need revival, don't we? We, we need revival. Yes. We need revival in our churches, and specifically in our churches. If we're coming from traditional African-American churches, which I love, uh, we do need a revival in clear gospel preaching, mm. uh, in evangelistic preaching uh, in, in our pulpits. And uh, I think what we, what we have to recognize as Christians is that a lot of the conversion growth among African Americans is this kind of hunger for two things. It's, it's a hunger that's created by father absence, and it's a hunger that's created by uh, an instinct toward justice and an instinct toward righteousness. And our churches have often been prophetic in that regard, and they have often been sort of surrogate parents to, to many. I'm not sure that's always the case anymore with the sort of rise of mega churches that reach wide areas that, but aren't sort of rooted necessarily in a particular neighborhood. I'm not sure that's the case anymore with some of the emphasis on materialism and things that we see in too many churches, black, white, and so on. Uh, I think we've got to recover a radical understanding of the church as family, and we've got to recover a radical emphasis on the Bible's uh, teaching on, on justice and mercy uh, and righteousness. Well, I so appreciate the book that you have written and would highly uh, commend it to our listeners. The Gospel for Muslims, and Encouragement to Share Christ with Confidence. My guest, the, the BT, Anya, oh, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Most people call me Pastor T. 
we'll go with that, Pastor T. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. It's a joy to be with you. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.